Hey, it's Heidi Dawson, and this is Wednesday Wisdom, where I interview wildly successful people from across the world, where we get an inside view into what their daily life looks like. Success leaves clues, and on Wednesdays, we're finding them. Join me now for the latest wildly successful interview. Hi guys, welcome to episode 122 of the Wildly Successful Lifestyle Podcast. So in America, where over 70% of people are overweight, 70%, and most people suffer from chronic pain, skin conditions, autoimmune diseases, we have to wonder why, right? If you suffer from any of these, or even if you just want to live optimally, this next interview could be the most important one yet. Dr. Osborne is a doctor of chiropractic. He's a doctor of pastoral science, an expert in functional nutrition. He is known as one of the world's leading authorities on gluten sensitivity. He's one of the most sought-after alternative nutritional experts in the world. He has a best-selling book, No Grain, No Pain. And let me tell you, he's passionate about health, and he pulls no punches with us in this interview. But it's time we hear the truth about the foods we eat. Here's Dr. Peter Osborne. Hi, Dr. Osborne. It is such a privilege to meet you. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Heidi. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining me. It's I'm excited about it. Um, so for people that don't know who you are, I think that they'll be so glad that they are being introduced to you today. Can you tell a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. I, I, uh, I do several things. I'm a chiropractor by training. I'm also board certified with the American Clinical Board of Nutrition, and I'm a doctor of pastoral science. And what I do is I help people understand the power of diet and lifestyle change to overcome chronic degenerative inflammatory diseases and autoimmune problems. Uh, in a nutshell, that's it. I mean, people come to me from all over the world, you know, trying to figure out why they have rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or scleroderma or ankylosing spondylitis or multiple sclerosis, you name it. And uh, because they've been through the medical model, the medical model is, you know, I'm not anti-medicine. I want to be very clear with your audience on that. Some people, you know, accuse us of, you know, in the functional realm of being anti-medicine. I think medicine has its place, but um, medicine's place is in acute care management of, of, of problems. So if you get a gunshot, if you have a knife wound, if you're in a car accident, if you need to be patched together, sewn together, or have an operation to save your life because you have an appendix that's inflamed and infected, we have the best medical care system in the world and you absolutely should, you know, should partake of it. Yes. However, if you have a chronic degenerative inflammatory condition, uh, the United States of America is ranked 37th out of 37 countries in industrialized countries in terms of overall healthcare outcomes and quality of care, despite the fact that we spend more, uh, a magnitude more than every other country. It's, it's you know, healthcare expenditure is a multi-trillion dollar business in the United States. And that's why I, that's why I think, at least my personal opinion, is that we will never see um, medicine for the treatment and management of chronic inflammatory diseases go away because it's big money. It's big business. And that's not, that's not to say it started that way, that there are evil people in the back of rooms saying, ha ha, how can we make people sicker and, and take their money away from them? I think it just evolved into that. And that's just where we're at. And now that, now that we've socialized healthcare, we basically have said it's healthcare is a right, which I don't believe healthcare is a right. I think owning your choices and your decisions is an obligation that negates the need for healthcare. And so if you are sick with a chronic inflammatory degenerative disease, this is gonna sound harsh and I don't mean it that way, but all progress starts with truth. Um, if you're sick with a chronic degenerative disease, it is because of your choices, not because you have bad genes, not because you're getting older, not because, you know, it's just poor you. It's your, you're making choices that don't suit your body's ability to maintain its own health. And so your body is screaming at you. It's saying, make a change. It, how does your body scream at you? It makes your joints hurt, makes your muscles hurt. It causes neuropathy, causes you to have brain fog. Like your body is, is really just trying to tell you, do something different because we can't handle it. We're breaking down now. But wow. most people want to ignore that take a pill and subjugate the symptoms. And when you do that, um, what you actually are doing, I, I, that's why I call, I call treatment of chronic disease, 
is pseudo compassion. It's not compassionate at all. Is it compassionate to lie to somebody so they can continue living a lie? No. It's like, is it compassionate to give an alcoholic a drink because they're on a binger and they're craving it? No, it's more compassionate to tell them the truth. You need help. And these are the changes that you need to make. That's true compassion. Yes. I, 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 it's so refreshing to hear that and to hear it from someone who's so passionate about it and knows what they're talking about, because I happen to agree with you. And I think that, uh, again, medical uh, doctors are there for a reason and they are good. Uh, but I also think that it's more sick care th than health care. Right. So you're, you're really just taking care of symptoms of sick people, not trying to get them to be healthy. And so I agree with you. And I love hearing the truth because you're right. All progress does start with the truth. So on your website, and I was telling you a little bit before we started um, recording that I watched the success videos of the people that your clients that have met with you. And literally I'm sitting there in tears because I feel I, there are so many things, you know, I'm not that old and I feel like my joints hurt. And when I don't eat certain breads or I don't eat white rice and things like that, like I feel like a new person and I don't, really think people understand the connection between food and their body and food and their mind and their and their happiness. So talk about and you have a little bit, what are some of the symptoms and problems that you've seen helped or eliminated because of your programs that you've put together? You name it, I've seen it. Um, I've, I've seen multiple, I've seen people get out of wheelchairs. Wow. You know, with, with multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's disease, I've seen people who had six months to live live a full life. You know, I've been practicing 20 years. One of my first patients early in practice was a little girl named Ginger. She had, she had a terminal diagnosis of juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. From the age of two, she was medicated with a very potent anti-cancer drug to suppress her joint pain because they didn't have another solution. Yeah. And uh, her mom brought her out, brought her to me in desperation. I mean, the, the doctors literally, this is what happened. They, they looked at this woman and they said, you need to go home and get your affairs in order. Your daughter has about six months to live. And this is after she trusted them for seven years to do the right thing and take care of her. And, uh, and so she brought her to me out of desperation. And what we found out with this little girl is, is she had a gluten sensitivity and she was reacting to blueberries and every morning her mom would make a blueberry smoothie for her and that was breakfast because blueberries are a superfood right and as lucretius the roman said you know and i'm paraphrasing here one one man's food is another's poison and this is this is why food doesn't get the respect it deserves because people don't understand that food can be the greatest blessing in your life or it can be the biggest curse but it works like a slow poison you know, not everybody has a peanut allergy where their lips swell and it's super obvious. Right. There are levels or degrees of reactivity against food. And sometimes those levels and degrees cause autoimmunity, cause chronic inflammation that leads to autoimmunity. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't cause the hive outbreak or the lip swelling or the eyes and the watery, you know, eyes and mouth and nose and the allergy symptoms that we associate with an acute or a very quick response allergy. So we have what are called delayed hypersensitivity responses. And those have a window of three hours to three weeks. So imagine if you're eating something every day for breakfast, all it really does is cause you to feel bad all the time. So you never can figure out why you're feeling bad. Um, and, and this is where people get stuck. They don't, they don't respect food. Medical uh, establishment has zero respect for food. I, I know this. I look, I train doctors all over the world. Right. And when I, when I first started doing this, one of the things that surprised me the most, because I didn't know this was, you know, almost 20 years ago, I, I would talk to different medical doctors who I, who I would be teaching classes to, and they would say, we didn't really get any nutrition. Because I, I teach, I teach, one of the classes I teach is drug-induced nutritional deficiencies, how medications cause vitamin and mineral deficiency. And I would teach that to medical doctors, because obviously they're prescribing these drugs, they need to know the counter side effects. And they would come up to me after the lectures and say, this is, this is mind blowing because this isn't anecdote, by the way, either, Heidi, this is like, when I present it's, it's research study after research study, after research study that's been performed by PhDs and MDs at academic levels, identifying these problems. But it's because it's not taught in medical school, these doctors are graduating and they have no clue. 
right? And so when, when I talk to them after these, uh, after these lectures, they're like, you know, I got maybe three hours of nutritional training in my entire medical curriculum. And what they taught us wasn't even nutrition. It was, you don't need to worry about nutrition. Nutrition's not important. That's what they call nutritional training in medical school. And people don't realize that. You go to a medical doctor, you think, of course they know about nutrition. They should, right? It's the human body. But because they don't, it, 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 creates a, it creates a huge gap in outcomes of care. Absolutely. And I want to go back to something you said about uh, blueberries. Now, of course, you see everywhere that that is a superfood. I mean, people are, uh, if you ask most people, they would say, yes, I think blueberries are a superfood. But like you said, not for everybody. Um, I have a sensitivity. Very, I'm a very allergic to eggs. And I didn't know that. And I love eggs and it helps me to eat lean. But when I eat e eggs, I want to scratch my hands off. Like they, my arms and my hands, it's so bad. And, you know, then you hear that eggs are also a superfood, but not if you're allergic to them. So you don't know people, if you don't get tested, you don't know what you're allergic to. And a lot of times, so many of these things are affecting us now. You talk about um, some of the things that you've helped overcome. What about the things that doctors say are incurable, like gout? Is this something that could be fixed through nutrition? I mean, there's a lot of things. All forms of autoimmune disease that I'm aware of um, can be vastly improved, if not cured, through diet and lifestyle change. Um, and what, what do I mean when I say autoimmune disease? Is autoimmune disease, there's 40... 6 million cases of autoimmune disease estimated in the US today. It's the number one cause of death in females under the age of 65. Okay. Autoimmune disease. Oh, you're going to tell us what that is. <laughs> autoimmune disease trumps cancer and it trumps heart disease. But, but you'll never hear that in, me, in media. And the reason why, when we talk about cancer statistics, we clump all cancers into one category right? We clump the brain cancer with the bone cancer with the skin cancer, etc. So when you hear a million people died of cancer, you don't, you don't say, you know, 50,000 died from this cancer, 20,000 died from that cancer, you clump it. Yeah. Well, autoimmune disease is one condition okay. with multiple different classifications, but we don't report statistically, we don't report them as the same. We report them as over a hundred different unique conditions. And just for clarification, an autoimmune disease, can you explain that exactly what that is? So there, there are a number of autoimmune conditions. What, what autoimmune disease basically is, it's when your immune system is so overwhelmed by your choices, your behavior, your food choices, your exposure to chemicals, your overexposure to stress, your lack of sleep. These are all choices that everybody has the ability to make. When your choices are so bad, and you multiply that over years, the body's immune system becomes like a soldier who's been at war too long. Um, you know, when they come home from the war front, they have what's called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So imagine being a soldier for a year, you're constantly holding your gun, you're jumpy, you know, you're shooting at enemies, enemies are shooting at you. Well, when you come to back to civilization and somebody taps you on the shoulder, your first, you know, your first reflexive behavior is going to be to shoot or punch or run or fight. Absolutely. That's what happens to the immune system when every day is a war for the immune system, right? A chronic bombardment of bad choices, the right. wrong food, chemicals in the food, chemicals in the air, the, all those things, right? The immune system becomes overreactive. And when the immune system becomes overreactive, sometimes it begins to overreact against the person's own tissue. So, so, for example, multiple sclerosis, MS, is an autoimmune condition of the nerves. It's when the immune system is attacking our own nerves. Hashimoto's is a thyroid disease. It's an autoimmune thyroid disease where the immune system is attacking our own thyroid or our own thyroid hormone. We have diseases like PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, is an autoimmune condition where the immune system is attacking uh, and creating cysts in the ovaries. We've got rheumatoid arthritis, which is when the immune system attacks joints. Uh, same thing with lupus and, and psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis and scleroderma and polio, uh, polymyalgia rheumatica the, and reactive arthritis. These are all just different forms 
a fibromyalgia, right? The things that people have heard of the most, probably, you know, some of those things I just mentioned or just said, but, uh, you know, the number one prescription in the United States today is for thyroid, Hashimoto's. Really? Okay. Um, number two is pain medication. Most of those pain diseases are, are, are autoimmune based. That's why I wrote a book a few years ago, you know, as an international bestseller, No Grain, No Pain, was to help people suffering and struggling with chronic pain to kind of understand how diet choices and how, how you know, lifestyle choices create an immune system that overreacts and starts an autoimmune process. I like the way you say that though, because it gives me um, the ability or the, it gives my mind the, the chance to say I can change it because it's my choice. And so I, I think that's empowering, even though, you know, like you said, it can sound harsh, but it is empowering because it, I can change that. Like what I'm doing is it can be fixed um, most likely by food and I can, I'm in control of that. So a lot of people are walking around and they feel really bad and they go to the doctor and the doctor's like, nope, your tests look normal. They're all normal. There's nothing wrong with you. And they know something is wrong. So how much of today's, I mean, it sounds like most of what today's health problems are, especially in America, is from our diet. Is that right? Well, it's, it's a strong likelihood that it, it definitely plays a major role. Test mm -hmm. results that look normal. I think your audience would benefit from this. Um, when you go to the doctor and you run some tests, you get back this, you know, this, this sheet of paper or this digital handout or whatever it is that it says your range is, you know, X to Y and you fall within that range. Therefore you're normal. Right. Right. So, so my mentor used to ask, or used to tell me what is normal, who defined it. And that, and that, that never, I never, that never, lost weight with me because I always thought, well, that's true. Who, who gets to define what normal is? And here's how, here's who actually defines normal. Labs recalculate their ref reference ranges about every 10 to 50,000 samples. So, so let me give you an example. If we look at the 1970s, socially speaking, you could barely find somebody who was overweight. Right. It was, it was very rare. Today, 60% of the U.S. population is overweight, uh, and it's estimated in the next 10 years, it's going to be like 80%. Now, those 80% of people who are going to be overweight are not going to have the same lab references that, that a bunch of people who are healthy weight are going to have, no. right? So as labs have, over time, they've changed their reference ranges, those reference ranges have expanded to be inclusive of illness. So we've normalized illness. Right, and we've done that through what are called standard deviation bell curves and reanalysis. But, but you know, I'm going to give you another example. When I first started practice, normal cholesterol was 280. That was normal cholesterol. And a few years into practice, they dropped the number from 280 to 250. Then they dropped it again from 250 to 220. Then they dropped it again to 220 to 200. And so we asked, who dropped those numbers? Well, we, when we look at, back at it, there was a major expose written, I think it was USA uh, Today or Newsweek, one of, those, one of those major papers, had an investigative reporter, and he wrote a major piece on conflict of interest around cholesterol. And what, what happened in the 80s when the cholesterol drugs like the Zocor, the Lipitor, you know, the statins came out, um, those drugs became super powerhouse drugs that doctors were, were prescribing and prescribing and prescribing. But when we looked into, well, why do we keep lowering the cholesterol? Why was 280 healthy at one point and now we have to have it at 200? If you look at the different panels of doctors that convened to make those decisions, they were almost 100% on the payroll for Merck and Pfizer. But the FDA granted those doctors waivers, even though they had conflict of interest, the FDA said, no, we're going to allow it. Right. And so there's a conflict of interest that also can create lab number changes. Um, when I first started practice, normal triglycerides, triglycerides is a marker for heart disease risk. It's, it's basically it's measuring fat in the blood. Normal triglyceride values were, were 75 or less. Today, normal triglyceride values are, are 150 or less. Right. So you have this, this vast deviance that's occurred in lab and lab diagnostics. But it was always flawed. Even back then it was flawed because it assumed normal. One person is, you can't compare one person to 10,000 people who aren't that one person, 
right? So in science, we do studies and we do research where we take 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 people. And we say, when these people do this, the outcome is that 40% of them experience X, 50% experience Y, 10% experience Z, right? Like we, we kind of try to classify it out. But it's never 100% experience this. It's always very, quite varied. Yeah. And then we take, we take the, the biggest data set. So like if we said, for example, people that eat, um, that eat overall, people that eat more of a Mediterranean diet, you know, 60% of them had less heart attacks, but not 100% of them, right? So do we then make the claim that a Mediterranean diet is right for absolutely everybody because a study showed that it was healthier for 60%? No, because there's 40% that it didn't help. You well, see actually, yes, we do. <laughs> but yes, we do. Yeah. And so this is, this is in, in science, we, we call this applying large-scale studies to single individuals and we ignore what's called biochemical individuality, which is the person in front, when if somebody comes to see me in my office, they're the only person that matters. I don't care what the research said about this, that, or the other. I only care, in, in science, we call N equals one. That The N number is the amount of people involved in a study. So if there's 10,000 people in a study, N equals 10,000. But it's N equals one, because the only outcome that matters is the person that's standing uh, across the room from you who needs your help. So if you don't have a way to isolate and tease out how they're unique, not how they're like everyone else, right? We call that, there's a concept called my, my mentor, uh, Roger Williams. He, he, he was one of my mentors and he actually didn't even know it because he wrote so many wonderful books when I was a graduate school that I read, but one of them was called Biochemical Individuality. And what he did in his research, Roger Williams was a Nobel Prize winning scientist. He discovered vitamin B5. He did autopsies and found that a person of the same sex, same height, same weight could have a heart that was 200% different in size or could have a pancreas that was vastly different or could have difference, major differences in blood volume. And, he, and so his argument was people are very different, right? And when we try to clump them all into one, when it comes to individualized care, you really, they really end up losing out. They get care that they shouldn't get. They get recommendations that don't really match them right. as a person. And that's where I think, that's where I think medicine has failed chronic degenerative care because chronic degenerative diseases don't have a single cause. If you say, what causes diabetes? If you ask that question on the street, most people will say sugar. Right. And I would argue that they're right, but they're also wrong. Okay, grain can cause diabetes. Dairy can cause diabetes. Lack of exercise can cause diabetes. Vitamin B3 deficiency can cause diabetes. Chromium deficiency can cause diabetes. There's a lot of things that can cause diabetes. The question isn't what causes diabetes. The question is what causes diabetes for the person who right. needs help? What and causes your diabetes? That's exactly um, right. So I want to touch back on this just to make sure I understand correctly because it sort of blows my mind and it absolutely kind of infuriates me that the you say the labs that recalibrate every 10 to 50,000 samples. So what you're saying is that a 1970s person who's relatively healthy would be equivalent to someone today that would be very sick in the 1970s really the the opposite okay okay the opposite so person the, the think of it this way a person who was sick in the 1970s yes okay would actually be healthy today ah right okay yes okay because the lab <laughs> reference ranges may have caught that person because we had a better norm right okay. so, so they're they were considered in the 1970s they would have been considered unhealthy today they probably would be extremely healthy and people would be in awe that they're in that good of shape that's exactly right i mean look at what we've done as a society if you if you saw the recent um cosmopolitan magazine and they they, they really were um they were glorifying disease and look i i'm this is not me saying that people that have a weight problem are bad people um this is me saying that people that have a weight problem are sick and here's how they're sick obesity has been been shown to be an inflammatory disease. So if we glorify that, if we say it's okay to be a big woman or a big man, 
okay, and have a beer gut, et cetera. What we're really saying is it's okay to be sick right. and it's okay, secondary, it's okay to lean on your fellow citizens because you're sick, that you're gonna actually rob from the taxpayers' coffers to fund your poor choices, right? Would you like to pay for the healthcare of a cigarette smoker? I personally, no, I wouldn't, okay. but we do. So on the same token, would you want to pay for that, for the health care of somebody who made bad choices about their health and, and became very sick? And that's where we're at. I, I, I say it for that reason, because, you know, I, I look at that person on that cover, that magazine, and maybe they're in their own mind, they believe big is beautiful because nobody's told them the truth. You know what I'm saying? So there, so we're as a society, we're justifying not offending them, not hurting their right. feelings, not offending them. We're going so far to not offend people that we're actually encouraging sickness. And you know that I think it all, and like you said, there's not this these people in black coats in a room, you know, on a on in the big high castle that's saying, let's see how sick we can make people. But what what I find is that it's extremely confusing to decide what to eat and it shouldn't be that confusing. And I wonder, you know, is there kind of a diet that, cause not everybody will be able to a afford to come see you. Um, and they may not be able to afford to get the testing, but is there kind of an idea of a diet that someone could eat that would be relatively healthy or is it everything need to be genetically tested i mean everything you have to know for your body type it depends let's let's say that you're watching this and you're 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 a relatively healthy person you're fit you're you're in good shape you you exercise you sleep well you manage your stress you try to eat healthy right. and you're you're just trying to say okay what do i eat because yeah there is a lot of confusion out there for those people that are already in generally good health here's yeah. what you need to know there's three rules around eating if we're simplifying it. Rule number one, you can't get healthy or stay healthy eating food that isn't healthy. Okay, this is our common sense rule. <laughs> now, now, okay, quiz for the audience. Is a soda healthy? No. Okay. No, okay, common sense rule. I had a patient one time, she said she was diabetic, her blood sugars were in the 600s. She, I said, you know, you got to get your diet under control. She says, I do. I, you know, I'm really healthy. I, I drink orange. I said, what do you mean orange? You mean you, you drink orange juice? She says, no, I drink orange, orange soda. I said, well, orange soda is loaded with sugar. She says, yeah, but it's orange. So it's okay. It's healthy. I mean, her mindset was so, oh, she was so uneducated about nutrition that she thought orange soda was, was actually good for her. And so, so some people don't pass the common sense rule because they just haven't been educated. And that's a failure of society. That's what I, that is my point I'm trying to make. And I want to get back to the, the, the three rules because I've got the first one, but you, you know, so many people think of um, orange juice as healthy, Diet Coke is healthy, you know, and I, I can't even imagine is Diet Coke as bad as I think it is. It's worse. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I thought so. I don't drink it. But I, 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 I have friends that do, and I'm always like, what, you can't do that, you know, because you're, it's just making your body crave more sugar because it thinks it's getting sugar and then it doesn't. And on top of that, it's so bad for you. So, okay, good. I'm, I'm glad that I asked that question. Now, what's rule number two? Rule number two is listen to your body. If you eat it and it makes you hurt, makes you itch, makes you have a stomach ache, gives you heartburn, fill in the blank then that is your body's way of communicating back to you something in that food or on that food or, or that food itself, it doesn't agree. Yes, so, yes. so, so don't eat it. Don't, you know, I see, you see the commercials where like, you know, it's, it's usually, it's usually with for guys uh, in this case, it's like, uh, you know, the, you got the big cheeseburger, the big bun, the, you know, triple stack with cheese everywhere. And it's like, you got problems with heartburn, take down some Tom's and then eat it anyway. Right. It's like, no, don't do that. You're, the heartburn is your body screaming at you saying, this is poison. Right. So listen, honor your message, honor the body's message. That's the second rule. The third rule is one that you, you can apply. If you don't do testing, you can apply this, um, okay. which is don't eat what you're sensitive, allergic, or intolerant to. Now, that being said, it falls under rule number two. If you can't do testing, keep a food diary. 
right? Pay attention to how you feel. If, if, you know, you ate, if you ate onions all week long and you had joint pain all week long and the next week you didn't eat onions uh, and you didn't have joint pain, these are things you might pick up on there. It's more subtle. It won't be quite keeping a diary of what you eat and how you feel sometimes can be very helpful. And that's, that's anybody can do those three rules for free. Now, if you, if you can afford it and you want to get tested, get tested. Um, Now on that same note, so that's, those are the three rules kind of just generally speaking that anybody can apply if you're, and I said that about healthy people, right? So I, that's I, right. Because in order to apply these, you have to at least be aware of the symptoms that aren't working for you. Because if you are unhealthy, just in general, you have no clue how bad you feel, I think. Right. Well, well, that's what, that's where I was going next. So those rules are established for people that are relatively healthy. Then you have people that have overt disease, diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, you know, any form of autoimmune process. Those people don't have a norm. They don't know what their norm is. Most of them don't. Their norm is feeling bad. You know what I'm saying? They, They feel bad all the time. So what they speculate is normal is become who they are. Like they've become their symptoms. That is who their persona has said, You know, if you ever hear somebody say my diabetes, right, or my arthritis, they own, like with pride, their breakages. And you shouldn't own your breakages because your breakages are not something to be prideful of. Your breakages are something to be aware that you need to make a change. So if your norm is pain, is medicines, is illness, you need to seek help. You can't afford not to seek help, is my opinion on it. And here's why. One visit to the ER is 20 grand. That's right. Gone, right? If you were taking one medicine for 20 years for the rest of your life, you would spend 10 times more on that medicine than you would see seeing a doctor like myself. That's right. Absolutely. Where you could get to a point where you were on no medicines for the rest of your life. Wow. So, so it's, it's not an issue of whether or not a person can afford it. It's an issue of whether or not a person perceives that their health issue is important enough for them to address. And some people, you know, they're told and they believe it. Oh, I'm just getting older. My arthritis is kicking in. It's an old right. injury. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. Arthritis is an inflammatory process of self-neglect. You just have to figure out where you've neglected yourself. Because again, where we failed as a, as a culture is we failed in teaching the children the importance of food, the importance of exercise. You know, the last 30 years of academic work in, in, in our public schools has been what? Leave no child behind and teach them all towards standardized tests, throw away sports, throw away physical activity as important. We, we're gonna give them 30 minutes of recess and seven and a half hours of sitting in a desk all day with poor posture, right? Straining their eyes to teach them how to pass a standardized test, but not teach them how to live life and not teach them the importance of food or exercise or sunshine or sleep. Who teaches most of the nutrition classes in grade schools? Fat coaches who have no business teaching it. Would you, look, would you take weight advice from somebody who was overweight? No. Would you take financial advice from somebody who lived under the bridge? I hope not, right? <laughs> so why do we have people who are unqualified in our schools? And I'm not, I'm making a broad sweeping accusation here. Right. Sure. I'm not saying that every teacher's bad. I'm simply stating that as a general rule of thumb, what is being taught is wrong. And we are the manifestation in society of that incorrectness. And that has to be addressed because right. what a lot of people believe as they believe their truth, um, but it's actually, they're believing a lie. If that makes sense. I, I it does. It, it does make sense. I, I think about how, you know, there's all these different fad diets and, you know, low fat and then, you know, keto, whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of, my mother was on the Atkins diet for 10, 15 years. And, you know, I think about the like artificial sweeteners, how we've tried to create these foods that taste good, but the chemicals are worse for us than the actual sugar. Is that right? So you mentioned Diet Coke. So I'll just use that as our example since you're talking about artificial sweetener. There's two versions of Diet Coke. Um, there's one with Splenda. Splenda, also known as sucralose, is chlorinated sugar, meaning it's a sugar, it's a sugar molecule where we've removed a hydroxyl group and replaced it with chlorine. 
Now, chlorine is an antibiotic. It's what a lot of antibiotics are produced from. And so it has an antibiotic effect on the microbiome of the human gut. Chlorine also causes a reduction of iodine into the thyroid gland. So it can actually impact and affect the thyroid gland leading to lower um, thyroid hormone production. Okay, the, but on the other side to that, the, the Splendor or the sucralose, uh, it's a zero calorie, meaning you don't absorb any calories from it, but it still triggers a neurological message to your brain. And so your body responds to it exactly the way it would respond to sugar, which is to dump insulin and cortisol into the bloodstream. So it creates the same obesity. It creates the same blood sugar problems that regular sugar would create. It just doesn't have calories. Wow. Okay. And so there's, most people are so fixated on the caloric effect of food. They think if they eat less calories, they'll lose weight. We know that's been a wrong theory for 40 years. Right. The caloric theory of, 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 of food is, is, is true only to an extent. The, the more powerful component of food is the hormonal effect that food can have. That's why food is so precious. Um, it can be a poison or it can be a gift because if you're eating food that has chemicals in it that can alter your hormonal outcomes, it can make it weight loss an impossibility. It can make health an impossibility. And if you're drinking three or four or five of those a day, you can see the compounded effect. Now, if we use the other Diet Coke as the example, the one that has aspartame, right, or NutraSweet, it's a neurotoxin. We've known that for years. It damages, it's a trigger for migraine headaches, it's a trigger for neurological disease, and it still raises your blood sugar and your body still behaves around that artificial sweetener as, as it would around regular sugar. I used to, to drink sweet and low in my tea probably 25 years ago. And I, I was getting headaches I, every day. I would have headaches. And you know, when, since I stopped taking or having sweet and low and I just drink water or unsweet iced tea, I don't get headaches anymore ever. I just don't get headaches. And, and I don't drink any sort of, um, of the artificial sweeteners because I associate them with headaches. So, I mean, I think, I think that people, if you are listening and you're getting headaches, consider that right? Because I think that's a big cause of it. And I think Diet Coke is, is a huge cause of problems for people. Um, are there foods that you would recommend for everyone to avoid? I mean, is there anything that you're like, never eat this? Nobody should ever eat this. Well, that's why I wrote No Grain, No Pain. Right. Okay. I thought you were going to say that. I, we're going to talk about where to get that book because I can't wait to read it. I mean, I'm, I'm dying to read it. And I know that everyone here that's listening will benefit from reading it. So grain, like obviously. Yeah, it, 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 the book was written for people that have a pre-existing autoimmune diagnosis. So if you've been diagnosed with autoimmune disease, um, the book is for you. The diet is for you. There may be some nuances that the book can't address because again, uh, the book can't address for everyone wholeheartedly. There are nuances from individual to individual, but right. You know, grain is, a, is, a, is something that I go in depth. There's about nine different reasons why grain is not a good food for you to eat. Okay. Um, and, and some of that has to do with gluten and some of that has to do with the way grain is processed, the way it's farmed, the pesticides that are used, the hormones that are used, the way that it's extruded, the way that it's dried, the chemicals they add to it after processing. Like there's a, there's a handful of, of reasons why we wouldn't want to eat that more specifically because by the time it gets to your dinner plate, it's not, I wouldn't really call it food. I would call it fruit, frankenfood. It's been so manipulated by the time it gets to you. It, it really, the bread of our fathers is not the bread of today. If you've heard, ever heard the term, we broke bread together, or we break bread. Why? What does that it's mean? Hard. Breaking bread? Because it's hard. What is bread today? It's chewy, doughy. Right? Why is it chewy and doughy? Because so they add no conditioners <laughs> to it. They add chemicals to it, right? And it makes yes. it chewy and doughy. So is that mainly an America problem? Because I've noticed no. when really, because no. I sometimes when I go to Europe and I eat bread and it, it's hard, you know, I don't have the problems that I have here. And I don't eat a lot of bread over there either. But but when I do, it doesn't seem to to give me joint issues. The the biggest difference between bread there and bread here is there are less chemicals in the bread there. Okay. So, so whereas if you, let me re reframe what I said. So I said that, no, there's no difference. If you're gluten sensitive, if you're right. truly gluten sensitive, there's no difference because gluten is in all grain. Gluten isn't going to be in the bread. So if you've got a true problem with gluten, 
whether it's in Europe or whether it's in the US, it's a problem. But if you if your problem is not with gluten, but your problem is with glyphosate, pesticides, you know, different types of chemicals that are added to that bread, you're going to get less of it in certain European countries. Not all. Right. Like if you're in the UK, don't eat the bread. Right. Okay? They're pretty much just like the US. But if you're in Germany, they have greater degrees of protection, consumer protection on the quantity and the type of chemicals allowed in their in their farming. Well, it's, it was, it, it is Germany and it's my husband's family lives in a village and they go every day and they go and get their bread. And by the evening, that bread is extremely hard. Like if you don't eat it, you, it's, it's not, you can't eat it. Right. So I think there's something to that. I mean, obviously there's something to it. So, um, that no grain then really for, for anyone. And that's a really tough sell because we're a sandwich country. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a psychology to this. Okay. Um, the level of a person's pain has to be greater than their fear of change. Okay. What, what, you know, what in your experience promotes people to want to make change? Usually there's a pain point, so right? Pain. A psychological pain point, whether it's business, whether it's health, it doesn't matter. There's a psychological pain point that they can no longer deal with. And so they're willing to overcome their fear of objection, their fear of change to take some, some type of action, right? And it's no different with food. The psychology is the same. Okay. Well, so do you take new clients? Yes. And if someone comes to you, so my husband and I were talking about it and I was like, I would love to go see Dr. Osborne because I don't think we have anybody like you here. So what would that experience be like? What, what would that entail? What do you do with your clients? So the first thing we do is have a conversation and we get dive in deeply about, about their history, right? We do a deep dive on their history. What are they struggling with? You know, what is their lifestyle like? You right. know, do they have, what does their past look like? What is their past medical history? Are they taking medicines? Are they pre-diagnosed with any other major conditions? And we have a deep conversation about that. And then based on that conversation, I'll make some recommendations about what I want to see from an analytical point of view. I'm, I'm very objective that way. I, I try not to guess my clients toward the right path. If they want the guesswork, they can go read my book. They can look at my programs, but if they want the the real deal n equals one, then we really have to get objective. And that's, that's chemical anal analytical chemistry. Um, which and genetics, we do, right? Like what we do genetics, we do um, many different things. What there, there are categorical things that we look at and we, we do it differently than mainstream medicine. So whereas mainstream medicine looks at these bell curve norms, as we right. talked about earlier, we right. look at what are called functional outcomes. So if I want to know, for example, whether or not a person is deficient in a vitamin or a mineral. They're not getting enough vitamin C or they're not getting enough vitamin B. Um, I don't measure what's floating in their bloodstream. What's floating in their bloodstream is a direct reflection of their last meal, which is not accurate, okay? Because their last meal could have been very different than their 20 previous meals. But it's also a reflection of right this moment. It's like watching one frame of a movie, but you can't see the rest of it right? You don't have the big picture. You just have one frame that you can look at and then you can try to guess who's the, who's the villain, who's the good guy and what the theme of the movie is. It's hard to do from a single snapshot. Absolutely. So we, have to have, we have to have an elongated image of, of what that looks like for an individual. So the, the type of testing we do is very, very, um, well, it, was, it took 20 years to develop at the University of Texas biochemistry department. And it, in this example, it's we radio label the DNA of their cells and measure the growth rate of their cells based on the presence of adequate quantities of nutrients. And we use the person as their own control. And what I mean by that is we don't compare them to 10,000 other people or 50,000 other people. We actually measure their ability of their cells to grow adequately by first giving their cells everything they need to grow. And we see what their cells are capable of. So if your cell has everything it needs, here's what, what it's capable of. That's the person's baseline, They're their own baseline. Then we repeat the test and triplicate one nutrient at a time. And if their, their ability to perform was here, but when we take away the vitamin C, it's down here, right? We know that they're not storing enough vitamin C within that cell. That's an example of the type of, of technology that we use, which is very advanced, that the average doctor uh, will never use. 
Well, and people have to be willing to do that too. You know, that's the thing is that you could spend all the money you want. You, you know, you'd probably take it, but if somebody doesn't come back home and eat the way that they're supposed to eat. Now, I, I personally, I get very frustrated because we eat very healthy and I've just, I've been reading Dr. Hyman's book. Um, and so I was like, oh, I'm going to have more vegetables. And so I'm adding these vegetables. I mean, they're tearing my stomach up. You know, so, and then I, I, he was like, add flaxseed. So I'm like, okay, stop the vegetables, add flaxseed. Okay, flaxseed tears my stomach up. So I know that things are healthy and they're not, I, you know, they're not healthy for me. And so that's why I'm frustrated and I'm, I'm just going to have to come see you. You know, that's just, <laughs> it's going to have to be the case. So um, that's one way to do it is taking, you know, coming to see you and getting, personalized tests. That's one way. The other way would be to take your, read your book, have your courses, um, do the testing virtually. Do you have blood testing virtually? Yeah, we do. We do it virtually. We can meet through zoom. We can meet in the, in the clinic. I mean, either, either way is okay with me. Okay. Um, it depends on a person's level. We have people fly in from all over the world. We have people right. zoom in from all over the world. So. Okay, good. All right. So then, um, how do we, where's the best place A, to, to find your book and people, everyone needs to read your blog. So I'm going to put in the show notes, everything, because your blog is excellent. Your YouTube show is excellent. Um, everything is so full of good information. So where's the best place to follow you on social media, to get your book, No Grain, No Pain? And yeah, you can get that at any major bookstore. It's actually, you know, most people buy it off of Amazon probably, but Barnes and Nobles carries it. Um, you know, major, even Walmart's online bookstore, Target, you know, they all carry it. Okay. Um, that's, that's easy enough. You can also go to no grain, no pain book.com. Okay. Um, and that's, you know, we give you all different kinds of options where you can go find it there. Great. As far as our, our online, what I would encourage is I have a foundation called glutenfreesociety.org. Uh, I also have a website, drpeterosborne.com, but glutenfreesociety.org is if somebody's interested in the gluten-free lifestyle, if they're interested in a gluten-free diet, that's where you want to start. That site is is got thousands and thousands of articles, pages, scientific references, interviews with with experts in the field, all regarding the gluten-free diet. And then social media, you can find me at Dr. Peter Osborne on Facebook. You can find me on YouTube at Glutenology, Glutenology, G-L-U-T-E-N-ology. Um, those are the, probably the two best places to, to find me via social media where we put out the most information. And if you're interested in farming and farm animals, I have a farm. Um, you can follow me on Instagram where I post pictures of my pigs and ducks and chickens. And oh my gosh, fun. What is that? What, I, I'm, I'm so excited. I can't wait. That's Dr. Osborne. So Instagram, Dr. Osborne. Dr. Osborne. Okay. And you have so graciously put together a discount discount specifically for our listeners. It's um, WSLDNA75. And that's for, um, it is for a discount on the gluten sensitivity test. So we appreciate yeah. that. You're welcome. Yeah. If, if any of you think you might be gluten sensitive and you want to get confirmation, the best way to do that is genetically. A lot of the lab tests that doctors use do not detect the difference Right. Celiac disease and gluten sensitivity. As a matter of fact, 1% of the population has celiac disease. Six to 7% of the population has what's called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And so if you get genetic testing, you get that answer a lot better. If you get celiac tested, you might miss, you know, miss the detection. And just, just for everyone, um, I know for myself, when you talk about the um, the norms as opposed to optimal, for, for me, I was doing testing with my regular doctors about um, hormones and the regular doctor was saying, oh, it's your normal, it's fine, everything's fine, but I still felt like something wasn't right. And then I did very specific hormone testing with a, a local company here and they recognized that the te my testosterone was just completely out of whack. And so you, you have to, to really dive into it and understand, just like you said, Dr. Osborne, that you have to know yourself. And um, who was it that said the best doctor in the room when it comes to your health is you? I don't yeah. Know. You know, I don't know. A lot of doctors have said that ultimately okay. it's, a, it's a paraphrase off of, 
uh, many past doctors, but all going all the way back to Greek times. Right. And um, you are the best doctor. You are the best doctor in the room because look, no doctor anyone visits is, first of all, they're not invested in you. Like when somebody comes to see me, I'm not invested in, in following them home and watching them eat and right. you know, seeing yeah. how they feel. And do, I mean, I'm invested in them in terms of they're going to get 100% of my brain power and knowledge and everything. I'm invested in that way. But the only person in the world that can be invested in you to the level that needs to be, you know, uh, that it needs to be is you yourself, right? And even your spouse, even your, your family is not going to be as invested in you as you are going to be in yourself. Right. Love thyself, yes. right? So- so you've got to be your own doctor in that sense that that doesn't mean that that you um, you try if you're really, really chronically sick that you try to be your own doctor and do it yourself. This isn't a Home Depot project, but <laughs> it, it means this. Ask questions, get informed, be inquisitive, f- share feedback, right? The relationship between a doctor um, and, a, and a patient should be not dictatorial. Not like do what I say because I'm the doctor and I'm so smart. It they don't like to be questioned though, especially about food. <laughs> that is the question that doctors like um, when you talk to them about food. But that goes on a whole nother, whole nother path. But this has been more informative than you can even possibly ima- imagine. And I know you have so much more knowledge in there that you can give to us. But this is enough for today because it's a lot to take in. Uh, and I'm, I'm blown away by some of the things that you talked about today. And I appreciate it because you're making the world a better place. And I thank you for that. So thank you for coming on today and for giving us this information. And hopefully I'll get to see you because I, my husband and I definitely want to come see you. I don't, you're in Houston? Yeah, just outside of Houston, Sugarland, Texas. Okay. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends because we're just going to keep going bigger and better places together. And I love that about us. Talk to you in a few days.